Chapter 3 of A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Winton Carr Chapter 3 The Concept of Nature in Physical Science Henceforward, space and time as independent things must sink to mere shadows, and the only thing which can preserve some sort of subsistence is a kind of union of the two. Minkowski Monadology seems to follow a direction in the search for truth, the reverse of that which the mind takes in ordinary practical life and in physical science. This would be of little account were it not that in representing the inclusive character of reality, the monad seems to undermine and even destroy the fundamental concept of physical science, the notion of a physical reality independent of any mind and a common object for all minds. All distinctions fall within the monad, and all relations are internal. The ego and the non-ego, the subject of experience, the I or me, and the object of experience, the world or universe, are not brought together in the monad. They are not two existences united somehow in an act of knowing. They are one existence dissociated in the act of knowing. The relation subject-object is a relation of polarity. The existence of each term depends on relation. Subject and object are not, therefore, dual existences, but a dual relation within one existence. In physical science, the objects which we apprehend are common to all minds. This, indeed, is what physical means. The objects of physical science are not tastes, smells, auditory and visual sensations, feelings of pleasure and pain, but the existences which give rise to these subjective experiences. And in physical science, we regard these existences, however changing and unstable their appearances, as independent of their relations to the minds which may apprehend them. If then monadology renders such a fundamental assumption a priori impossible, it would seem to be destructive of physical science in its inception and ground. This is not a problem we can set aside, and it is not a science problem. It is a problem of philosophy. Physical science is in no need of philosophy to justify its existence, or even to stamp its method with the hallmark of validity. It is justified by its success, a success which is complete and unequivocal. The astronomer calculates the movements of the planets and predicts an eclipse. He can foretell the exact incidence of the shadow and define the time interval occupied by any portion of the event and to any required fraction of a second. All the astronomer's activity in calculating is dependent upon the workings of his mind, but the accuracy of his science depends on the absolute sense in which he can eliminate every subjective element from his object. It has come to be accepted universally that the success of science is due to this complete elimination of subjectivity, and that the possibility of such elimination is proof of the fact that there exists a common object which minds possess the power of apprehending. If metaphysical theory undermines or destroys this basis, it must furnish some ground of explanation for the success of science. I propose, therefore, to examine critically the scientific notion of physical reality. The notion itself, whether or not it be necessary as a basis of physical science, is not a physical but a metaphysical concept. John Locke, in the essay on the human understanding, 
makes frequent use for purposes of illustration of the embarrassment of an Indian philosopher who, questioned as to what supported the earth, replied an elephant, asked then on what the elephant stood, replied a tortoise, and when further questioned as to what supported the tortoise, replied something or other he knew not what. Locke argues that the notion of substance as philosophers use it is this kind of explanation. It is an idea of something or other we know not what, which holds together the sensible qualities of a thing and constitutes its thinghood. What impressed Locke was the necessity we are under to postulate something or other and the helplessness we experience in our effort to give this something any characterization. This illustration is more apposite even than Locke suspected if we apply it not to the philosophical effort to form a notion of substance, but to the scientific effort to frame a positive notion of the stuff which ultimately constitutes physical reality or nature. The history of physical science is a record of the continual displacement of one notion of the material basis of reality by another, each on its discovery claiming to be absolute, and each in its turn finding that it must seek support outside itself. The Indian of Locke's story was not intended to denote some particular Brahmin, Buddhist, or other sage. Oriental philosophy was little known in Locke's time. The Indian of the 18th century was the ingenuous child of nature, the purely unsophisticated mind. He is Pope's poor Indian of untutored mind, Voltaire's ingenue, and the humor lay in the simplicity and childishness of the imagery. What the story really illustrates is the fact that the human mind, by an apparent logical necessity of thought, continually finds itself compelled to form a notion of some existence other than the actual existence present, to wit, in sense, experience, as a support and ground of sense experience, and then finds that it cannot give expression to its notion, save and accept, in the imagery of that very sense experience which requires the extraneous support. Thinking is interrogating. The mind asks questions about immediate sense reality and the very possibility of asking questions supposes a reality which is not sensibly experienced. The essential nature of thinking, it had been said, is the distinction of the that from the what. The that exists as present sense imagery. The mind may accept the that without asking what, but then it does not think. There may be, that is to say, and we commonly suppose there are, grades of mind in which what we call discursive thought is absent altogether, in which the creature lives entirely in the present without representation of the past or anticipation of the future. We usually picture the animal mind as more or less completely at this grade. Mind is essentially activity, but the activity may consist only in the simple expression of experience in immediate sense imagery, without any conscious reflection or interrogation. But whatever may be the normal condition of mind below the human, and however content at times the human mind may be in the enjoyment of immediate experience, absorbed in a present attention to life, it is human nature to think, and thinking means that the mind sets the image over against itself, and refers it to something not itself. Why it does so, wherein lies a necessity which disrupts immediate experience, we may leave aside for the present, and concern ourselves with the fact. The typical form of discursive thought is the question, what is that? The question implies that the immediate reality in the form of sense image is not self-existent, but an appearance whose ground is the reality. This something, as the ground or cause or reason of the existence, gives rise to the notion of physical reality. It is the idea of a reality outside the mind and independent of it, 
which manifests itself to the mind by a stimulus which compels the mind to infer it. The certain fact, therefore, is that every thinking being does, and must, by the very nature of thought, suppose that there is a physical reality, a reality which is not a thought, but something thought about, something independent of the thinking individual mind, a somewhat which explains the actual that which is experienced. There are two philosophical theories of the nature of this physical reality. One is that it is an existence which the mind discerns by means of its sense experience, and that our experience is experience of the sensible qualities of this existence. According to this view, whatever be the ultimate nature of physical reality, and however inferential our knowledge of that nature, it nevertheless is independent of any act by which we come to know it. And also, ultimately, it is the ground not only of the knowledge of it, but of the mind which knows it. In knowing we discern, or make discovery of, what exists unknown. The other theory is that this physical reality is a notion which is entirely a construction of the mind itself, a very complex construction, the result of a long and elaborate process. It is not a process which originates anew in each individual subject of experience. It has become, through evolution, a human heritage, taking in man the special form of intellect and being the human mode of activity. Setting aside, however, any philosophical theory as to the genesis of the notion of physical reality, let us examine the nature of that notion itself and trace the variation of form which, in the history of science, it has assumed. We shall see that philosophers have not been more successful than the Indian who imagined first an elephant, then a tortoise, then something or other he knew not what. It is clear that no one living our human life can ignore the obstinate facts which confront and environ that life. Life presents itself to us as a power of using what is the very opposite antithesis of itself, dead, inert matter. We shape and mold this matter to our purposes, but we have no power to bring the least and weakest element of it into existence. It is there. It is indifferent to us, independent of us, and it seems as though life, in itself a strengthless, feeble stream of tendency without support, had, by insinuating and adapting itself, won the means of subjecting this inert mass to its service. It succeeds by what appears an incessant watchfulness and alertness, which, if it fail for a moment, is obliterated forever by the dead matter. This matter, inert in itself, is swayed by resistless mechanical forces, consisting of the actions and reactions of blind, unintelligent movements. This is the aspect of the world to the human mind, and the first effort of the mind when it reflects and becomes self-conscious is naturally, and of necessity, to form a clear and precise notion of this matter, which seems opposed to life, and at the same time the necessary condition of the activity in which life consists. We find accordingly that historically the first record we have of pure philosophy are the efforts of men who sought to think out precisely the nature of this physical reality. A certain division, or grouping of the forms of this physical reality, suggested itself, we may suppose naturally, to the first reflecting observation. From very early times, this physical reality seemed divided into four distinct elements, earth, air, fire, and water. This classification, which now appears to us primitive and even childish, not only endured through ancient and medieval philosophy, but comes right into the modern period. It is, in a general way, accepted by Descartes in his Principles of Philosophy, and its place in our language shows how rooted it is in our modern thought. 
we still speak of the elements when we wish to signify what we call in poetic language the untamed forces of nature. Moreover, it was observed that there is a certain opposition in the nature of these forms of matter, so that one form is inconsistent with another, as, for example, fire and water. This notion is familiar to us in our expression, the warring elements. Hence, when men turn their thoughts to the investigation of the nature of this nature, which is opposed to mind, and at the same time the sphere of its activity, and the ground of its existence, two problems presented themselves. The first, what is the primordial stuff of which the elements are forms? And the second, what is and whence is derived the moving force? We may single out four types of theories, each of which has for some time and during definite historical periods held sway, and appeared to offer a satisfactory basis of physical science. They will repay examination and criticism, for each may be said in formulating a principle to have disclosed a problem which has led to the supersession of a theory previously held. The four types of theory I propose to pass in review are 1. The theory elaborated in the ancient philosophy of atoms and the void. 2. The rejection by Descartes of the vacuum or void, and the theory of the vortex to explain movement in a plenum. 3. The theory of absolute space and time and infinite velocity. Newton. 4. The principle of relativity. Every scientific theory of the physical basis of the material universe approximates to one or other of these types. I propose, therefore, to examine them as types, to criticize only what is the essential concept in each, and I shall not attempt to present them in the historical sequence, or with full detail, or to set forth the variety of forms they have assumed. I shall also, of course, completely ignore all criticism based on other than logical grounds. The concept of matter, which is the basis of physical science, is not identical with the concept of substance of philosophy. Matter is the general idea of non-mental, space-occupying stuff. The doctrine that matter is itself the seat of efficient causality is materialism, and this is a philosophical doctrine. It is a curious fact that, notwithstanding the overwhelming importance of the part which the concept of a physical reality plays in practical life, materialism is not a primitive, certainly not a natural and self-evident, belief. Animism, the contrary of materialism, is more primitive and more universal. Materialism, in the pure or aesthetic meaning, has always appeared late and not early in metaphysical speculation. It is also not a little curious that its condemnation by the popular judgment is always on moral, never on rational grounds. It has always seemed seductively rational, sometimes distressingly so, but it has also seemed to involve disastrous consequences in religion and ethics. It is in this connection that rationalism is used as a synonym for materialism. Materialism seems to justify the maxim, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The atomic theory of Democritus was the first form in which materialism took shape. It furnished the metaphysical basis of the Epicurean philosophy. The most beautiful exposition of this philosophy is preserved for us in the great work of the Latin poet-philosopher Lucretius, De Rerum Natura, the stuff of which the objective world or nature consists exist, he tells us, in the form of separate particles, atoms, whose size represents a limit of divisibility. The atoms are eternal and indestructible, identical in content, but diverse in shape, and movable by external compulsion, forming by segregation and dispersion the variety and diversity of the elements. They are encompassed by the void. 
The void is a negation absolutely necessary to the affirmation of the atom, and deriving from this necessity a positive status. The void is not merely the logical opposite or negation of the atom. It does not signify only the absence of an atom. It is a positive reality. There must be a void, as well as an atom, in order that there may be an atom. But the void also performed a function of prime importance. It rendered movement possible. For suppose the void abolished, and the atoms everywhere in contact with no free surface, even assuming them still to preserve their automaticity, they would become immovable. An unoccupied place in which to move is a condition of movement. If the space is occupied by atoms, the displacement of the surrounding atoms is a prior condition of the movement of any atom. An atom, before it can move, must displace the atom into whose place it is moving. If, then, there were no vacuum, and atoms formed a plenum, movement would be impossible. Moreover, as all the atoms are movable, by external compulsion, and are continually shifting, here condensing and there dispersing, the void, like the atom, is eternal and indestructible. This argument is admirably set forth in the following quotation from Lucretius, Volume 1, 370 to 383. Eludin hes rebus, nete vero posit, quod quidam fingut, precurare cogor, ceteres quamigeres latis niterabus aniunt, et liquidus apereres vias, qui post loca piscis, lunquadent, quo potus sedentis conflore unde, sic elias quoque res inter se possua moveri, et mutare locum, quam vis sint omnia plena. Se licent, it falsa totum rationae receptiumst. Nam quos quamigere poterent posserere tandum, ni spatium dederent latis. Concerre poro quo poterent ande, cum paesis ille nequement. Ad igitur moto privandumdumst, cum poroqueque, et esse admixtum, de cundumst rebus inae, unde initum primum capiat res quidque movendi. And herein I am obliged to forestall this point with some rays, let it draw you away from the truth. The waters, they say, make way for the scaly creatures as they pass on, and open liquid paths, because the fish leave room behind them, into which the yielding waters may stream. Thus other things, too, may move and change place amongst themselves, although the whole sum be full. This, you are to know, has been taken up on grounds wholly false. For on what side, I ask, can the scaly creatures move forward unless the waters have first made room? Again, on what side can the waters give place, so long as the fish are unable to go on? Therefore, you must either deprive all bodies of motion, or admit that in things there is mixed up the void from which everything gets its first start in moving. The atomic theory, or what is better described as the theory of atoms in the void, held its ground practically unchallenged throughout the ancient and medieval philosophy. It was opposed, but not by disputing the nature of matter, only by challenging its self-sufficiency and causal efficiency. Those who opposed it did not offer criticism of the concept, but denied the externality of matter, holding that it had been created and could be annihilated. It was the presumption of the atomic theory that nature in the form of atoms and the void was a reality which without contradiction could be conceived as eternal and indestructible, and this constituted, certainly for Lucretius, its main attraction. 
the object of his poem is to deliver mankind from the vain superstitions which torment it by showing that everything in nature can be explained without any necessity of supporting the intervention of the gods the effective criticism of the theory of atoms and the void is a main part of the philosophy of descartes it occupies a considerable portion of the principles of philosophy and in fact furnishes the real ground of descartes theory that material substance consists in extension alone it is impossible to exaggerate the importance of descartes criticism of the idea of void and of its supposed necessary function in supplying a condition of the possibility of movement the whole subsequent development of physical theory may be said to hinge upon it yet it is strangely neglected the once famous vortex theory is now passed over in most of the accounts of descartes philosophy or treated as merely an archaic curiosity this neglect is perhaps not difficult to explain it is due to the fact that descartes is regarded as before everything else a speculative philosopher and physics is regarded as peculiarly the business of the experimentalist in the development of physical theory therefore we pass at once from galileo and kepler to newton and ignore the careful and elaborate work of descartes because it is confined we suppose to criticism of concepts and not to observation based on experiment so far as the historical evolution of theory is concerned we are quite wrong some of the amazement we experienced in regard to the simplicity and directness and magnificent comprehension of the newtonian system is due to our ignorance of the profundity of the physical speculation of descartes descartes philosophy however speculative in the philosophical meaning of the term that is to say concerned with concepts as distinct from empirical facts is in the fullest sense practical his rejection of the concept of a void or vacuum is not based on the formal logical argument that the vacuum is the idea of nothing and that nothing is a pseudo idea for it is impossible that there can be an idea which is not the idea of something he rejected it because if there be a void action is impossible that movement of any kind may be propagated from one body to another separated from it by any instance some medium united them is essential action at a distance is inconceivable and also a contradiction of experience i can only ring a distant bell if i pull the cord attached to it how is such an action possible if the connecting cord be composed of atoms separated from each other by void in every case of an influence passing from one body to another there is some medium through and by which the influence is conveyed while however descartes saw clearly that a void if it existed would be an impassable barrier destroying the possibility of action between bodies which it separated he saw equally clearly the difficulty of movement in a plenum the difficulty to obviate which the atomists had assumed the void it was this difficulty which led him to formulate the famous theory of the vortex the theory is that movement in a plenum cannot consist of the successive displacement of the parts in movement such succession could never begin because the condition of the movement of one part is the prior displacement of the part which is to give way to it movement in a plenum is therefore only possible if all the particles comprising it move simultaneously and are so interconnected that they form a complete system if for example we have a system of atoms a b c d dot 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 z such that the movement of a involves that of b this again that of c and so on to z and if z completes the system so that its movement involves that of a then in this case movement is theoretically possible but must be simultaneous throughout the series not only is a vacuum unnecessary but it would upset the mechanism 
This is the simple scheme of the vortex, and Descartes applied it on a magnificent scale to explain the planetary movements, as well as to account for the mysterious phenomenon of the lodestone. A vortex is not a theory of the origin of movement in a plenum assumed at rest. It is a theory of the nature, or constitution, of a universe in which movement is actually existent, one of its characteristics. Descartes does not assume that matter existed originally as a compact mass, and that movement was somehow imposed on it, or set going within it. His argument is of the nature of an a priori. He points out the conditions of the possibility of what is an actuality. The solar system is, in this view, a vortex, and surrounded by other vortices, which are the systems of which the fixed stars are the nuclei. The condensations in sun and planets are not solid concretions poised in vast empty space. They are centers of revolving movement, heavier and denser by reason of their lower velocity compared with the immense velocity of the ethereal elements of which the vast firmament is composed. Light, he held, to be a very subtle matter, and capable by reason of its subtlety of stupendous velocity. He throws out the curious speculation that it is stuff formed and continuously forming by the friction of the vortices moving against one another. Descartes had no theory of the matter or stuff of the universe. He accepted the old distinction of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. What he did endeavor to deduce was the particular form of these elements from the movement of an assumed primordial stuff equally distributed. The substantiality of matter consisted only in extension, or what perhaps we ought rather to call extensity, for it is not geometrical space. The whole point of Descartes' argument is that wherever there is matter, there is extensity, not the place where matter may or may not be, but the substance of matter itself. Where there is nothing, there is no extension. Empty space is inconceivable. The notion of it directly contradicts the only idea which makes a mechanical propagated movement possible. Speculative as this argument is, it assumes exceptional importance in the light of our present physical problem, as well as for the part it has played in the historical development of physical theory. The hypothesis of the luminiferous ether is in fact designed to meet the very difficulty which Descartes had insisted on, the inconceivability of action at a distance. Descartes' whole philosophy was in fact called forth and determined in its direction by the great discovery of a Copernicus, which had been published some half-century before his birth and which in his time was revolutionizing the world view, and necessitating an entirely new reconstruction of human thought concerning the fundamental nature of our universe. The Aperceimeuve of Galileo is the real starting point of modern philosophy. It is a historical fact that throughout ages mankind has supported itself intellectually on a theory now demonstrably false, which explains the whole Cartesian theory of clear and distinct ideas. Our senses not only are untrustworthy in the matter of truth and error, they are not only liable to deceive us, but the whole point of our practical life is based on the deception, brought in us by the senses, that the moving is at rest. It is clear, then, that it is not to the senses we can turn for our criterion of truth. They must serve a lower and utilitarian purpose. Truth is not based on psychical certainty, but on principles which are only discerned by an intellect free from the distractions of sense. It was the Copernican discovery, moreover, which set the problem. Is movement the vacating of a position? When a material substance moves, does it leave behind a void? Or is movement a change of neighborhood of material substances relatively to one another? In declaring that material substance consists in extension alone, 
Descartes rejected the notion of a void within which things move, and of atoms as indivisible particles occupying an infinitely divisible extension. Material substance is extension, and extension is not distinct from it. It is not a void expanse spread out beneath it. The physical universe is a plenum, and all movement within the plenum is relative change of neighborhood. To be at rest is to be within a system in which the objects retain to one another their relative position, although the system itself may be in movement of translation relatively to other systems. In this way the new world view was rationalized. The earth is at rest, said Descartes, in the same sense in which I am at rest in the cabin of the ship which is transporting me from Calais to Dover. It was therefore the new world view which absorbed the attention of Descartes, and which has made the profound difference between the old philosophy and the new. Descartes' brilliant physical theories, however, suffered complete neglect when the scientific world came under the influence of the great mathematical and physical work initiated by Newton. It seemed that then a new method was found and a new era opened, promising an unlimited extension of the science of nature. Newton discarded all dialectical arguments, and refusing to be turned aside by any problems of a priori possibility, set to work to study minutely the facts as they lay before him, and to measure them. Hypotheses non fingo, he wrote at the close of his Principia. He took for granted that facts are what they purport to be, or rather he never allowed doubt on the question to disturb him. This attitude towards nature has now been adopted as a distinctive basis of the physical sciences. We have indeed to recognize that only by assuming the subject matter of the sciences can we have any sciences, for if we insist on raising the previous question, we cannot begin. Newton, then, described the universe as it presents itself to a human mind contemplating it, and he sought to determine and fix in clear mathematical formula the laws of its phenomena. Space and time and movement were therefore for him accepted facts, not problems. The framework of nature is an absolute space, an even flow of time fixing an absolute succession of events, and movement, the translation of matter occupying a position in space throughout adjoining positions at successive moments in time. Space might be occupied or unoccupied, but could not be annihilated. Time was absolute and unalterable, and movement was capable of an infinite acceleration. The framework of the universe is therefore an infinite and absolute space, and an infinite and absolute time, and consequently an infinite velocity. Movements of translation and propagation, and in fact all physical phenomena which involve movements, were therefore expressible in equations of velocity, of which space and time are constants. What is continually surprising us in the study of nature is the discovery that its actual processes, detected by scientific observation and experiment, are so entirely contrary to what seems the obvious mode of their working. How difficult it is today, now that we have become familiar with the sight of people riding bicycles and able to control perfectly every deviation of the movement, to realize how incredible was the notion of its practicability fifty years ago with what painful timidity we witnessed its first practical demonstrations. A most curious source of quite a number of illusions in regard to the movements which form part of our daily experience is an apparently natural induction, a false inference, to make which seems part of our human nature. The head which we hold erect is by far the heaviest portion of our bodily organism. We maintain its position by a continual expenditure of muscular activity, but of this expended energy we are entirely unconscious, and because of this unconsciousness we act continually 
and perform purposive movements under the conviction that our head is the lightest portion of the framework. Were it not for this illusion, and were it not for the difficulty of overcoming the tendencies and habits created by the illusion, the well-known difficulties in acquiring the art of bicycle riding, swimming, skating, even tightrope dancing would be non-existent. It is simple facts like these which show us that common experience is not self-explanatory, and which make scientific experiments appear so paradoxical in their inception, so revolutionary in their effects. The story that a falling apple raised in Newton's mind the question which led to the formulation of the law of gravitation may be apocryphal, but it illustrates the principle. Our nature is in equilibrium between an activity served by consciousness and able to be purposive, and an environment. Mental apprehension of this environment is practical, not theoretical. Familiarity is not identical with, nor a substitute for, scientific knowledge. Take, for example, Newton's first law of motion, the vis inertiae, the force or power in matter to persist in any given state, whether of rest or of motion in a straight line, and to resist any external force impressed upon it to change that state. In its two particulars, it is the direct reverse of what common experience appears to us to establish. Yet it is not based on speculation, but on careful observation and experiment. A moving body goes on moving till some force stops it, and a movement set free from a controlling force takes immediately the direction of a straight line. The cricket ball, when it leaves the bowler's hand, goes straight. It has taken no curve in its direction from the swing of the bowler's arm. The stone released from the sling does not follow the circular movement which gives it momentum. It flies off at right angles in a straight line, and is drawn to earth by the curve of the force of the earth's gravity. Newton assumed the framework of nature. The mechanical forces which he observed for the purpose of determining the laws of their action were viewed as free to act within a sphere fixed for them by absolute space and time. By regarding space and time as constant factors of the situation, he was able to determine the laws of motion. The equations which he formulated are adequate for all ordinary velocities, that is, for all movements which are under our control in practical life. It is only in regard to immense velocities which modern science has brought within our view, velocities which approach that of the propagation of light, ten million miles a minute as compared with the Earth's translation, ranging around five thousand miles a minute, that the equations fail. The difficulty which we meet throughout the whole development of physical theory is concerned with motion. How are we to conceive the ultimate constitution of the matter which seems to be necessary to support the reality which confronts us as nature, so that it shall not be inconsistent with the free movement of the masses, and of elements within the mass. The translation of masses, and the continual transformation within the mass by internal change, are undoubted facts of experience. How frame an image of a constitution consistent with motion and change, and so render possible the determination of the laws of movement and change? Newton found all the necessary conditions in space and time. Taking these as constant, Movement could be expressed in the terms of a ratio between them. As they were infinite, so an infinite acceleration was conceivable. Infinity, so troublesome to common sense and philosophical reflection, did not trouble him. Could anyone doubt that God is infinite? Space and time are the sensorium of God, parts of his infinite nature. The principle of relativity marks a revolution in the concept of the nature of physical reality, which can only be compared in its completeness with that which followed the Copernican discovery in the 16th century. It can be simply stated. The Newtonian measurements took space and time as constants, and velocity as variable. 
The principle of relativity takes velocity as constant and space and time as variable. It seems, and indeed it is, contrary to our ordinary notions, but it is not paradoxical. It is often denied that any metaphysical concept is involved in it and held to be of purely mathematical importance, a question only of convenience in the method of measuring phenomena. It is becoming increasingly evident, however, that the principle of relativity is based on a real fact as to the nature of physical reality, and therefore that it corrects a false notion and replaces it with a true one. Descartes pointed out that when we push off a boat from the shore, we invariably express the fact by assuming that only the boat moves and that the shore is at rest, whereas it is just as true that the shore moves and the boat is at rest. The movement, in fact, is relative, and may be measured by taking either boat or shore as at rest, and the other as having moved, but the calculation required in one case is infinitely more complicated than it is in the other. It is practical convenience in this case, and not physical fact, which determines our choice. The child's riddle, why did Mohammed go to the mountain, derives its point from our invariable habit of representing physical objects as immobile, and living objects as mobile. A philosopher's answer that the same fact could be equally true, described in terms that the mountain went to Mohammed, as in terms that Mohammed went to the mountain, would seem pure nonsense to the child. Many other modes of judgments which appear to us as invariable are merely conventions. Thus as distant object appears small, and its visual image grows larger as we approach it. The doubt never disturbs us that the change may be in us and not in the image, that in approaching the object we may be shrinking to smaller proportions. Yet the phenomena could be explained just as perfectly in that way. We may suppose that the good genius directing the evolution of our species has settled the matter for us and not left it to choice. There are many interpretations of common experience which are alternative modes of explaining phenomena and which in themselves do not disclose the principle which has guided us in our choice. We look around us at the room in which we are sitting, and we judge that it contains so-and-so many cubic feet of extension or space, and we think of this space as unalterable. When we translate this into terms of our experience, it simply means that with a certain expenditure of energy, it will occupy us a certain definite time to pass from point to point within it. Suppose that a strange and surprising experience should occur, that we should find our expectation not fulfilled, but that expending our accustomed energy, we had to take as many strides and as long a time to cross the room as to go a mile along a road. We should feel ourselves the subject of a strange illusion. How should we describe it? It is easy to see that we could describe it in either of two ways. We could say that the walls of the room, which we had in our old experience found to be a few feet apart, were now a mile apart. Or we could say that our movements, which previously had seemed rapid, now appeared to be labored and slow. This means that it would be perfectly indifferent, so far as the fact was concerned, whether we took space and time as constant and our velocity as variable, or our velocity as constant and space and time as variable. But we need not go to fanciful experience for our illusion, we can take it from historical fact. In the Great War, an army of millions was transported from America to France in less time than an army of thousands could have been transported from England to France a hundred years ago. We can express this fact by saying that we live in a smaller, less spatial, or more contracted world than our forefathers lived in, or that we move more quickly in it. We are not accustomed to take space as variable. To do so seems to go athwart the whole mode of our intellectual behavior. But so far as pure experience is concerned, the fact is the same and we can express it either way. Is it then purely indifferent which we do? No. 
We are all now familiar with the famous experiments and astronomical observations which have made it appear certain that space and time are in reality variable, and that it is not merely a question of convenience whether for the purposes of measurement we regard them as being so or not. All our methods of measuring physical phenomena depend in the last resort on light signals. They are practically instantaneous. We know that the propagation of light is not actually instantaneous, it occupies time, but the velocity is immense when compared with the velocities we are familiar with in the movements of matter, and the time interval between the emission and reception of a light signal for any two points on Earth is infinitesimal and practically inappreciable. We could never have discovered this velocity by observing purely terrestrial phenomena. We know it because our observation extends far beyond the limits of our planet, and it becomes not only appreciable, but substantial for the immense distances of the fixed stars, and it serves us as a means, our only means, of computing these distances. The actual discovery was made by Romer in 1675 from observations of Jupiter's moons. So far as terrestrial phenomena are concerned, we can measure a distance accurately by transmitting simultaneously a light signal and a sound signal, and recording the time interval which separates their reception. If we harden our experience, the cognizance of any force which would propagate a movement with greater velocity than light, it would enable us to appreciate the interval of light transmission, but we have not. Velocity is not self-explanatory. It requires a scheme, for it is a ratio between distances traversed and the time taken. It therefore supposes space and time. The scheme of the physical universe, which our experience of external reality demands, comprises 1. Space of three dimensions, 2. Time with one irreversible direction, 3. Matter or mobile mass, and 4. Energy or transmissible force. There is a vast gap between the velocities of the movements of matter when a mass is transported and the velocities of energy transmitted without translation of mass. It is easy to see, therefore, that if the scheme of an absolute space and time were a true representation of the framework of the reality of the physical universe, if, that is to say, space and time were constant and invariable constituents, and if velocities were capable of infinite acceleration, then strange and disconcerting phenomena would occur when velocities of translation approached and overtook the velocities of transmission. Suppose, for example, that the stellar system of which our solar system is a member were itself moving through space at the velocity of light. It is conceivable, and may actually be so from the viewpoint of some system of reference, what ought the effect to be on us dwelling on a planet revolving round the sun? We depend on our sun for our utilizable energy in heat and light, but we should find ourselves wholly deprived of any supply during the six months when the earth would be in advance of the source, for we should be in translation of greater velocity than the emitted light, and during the other six months, though the earth would be behind the source, it would be receiving light which could not be reflected. This appears extravagant but it is always useful to take the limiting case as the example. Are we justified because this conjectured experience is not actual in denying the supposition? Can we, in other words, on the basis of this argument, of what would occur in the circumstances supposed, set limits on the velocity of the movement of translation of our system? There is an alternative, and this is offered to us in the theory of relativity. The alternative interpretation is that the velocity of light is constant, invariable and independent of the movement of the source, and that space and time are variable. Every movement of translation of the source of light is automatically compensated in a shrinkage or an expansion of the space and time coordinates. Have we any means of deciding between these alternatives? The answer is that it has been possible to devise experiments. 
and that the result of them is overwhelmingly decisive in favor of the principle of relativity. The historically important experiment with led to a formulation was made by Michelson and Morley in 1886. The Earth, in its annual revolution around the Sun, is carried through space, and we can therefore represent this space as an ether stream flowing past us, and every six months the direction of this stream is completely reversed. It is of no consequence what theory of the hypothetical ether we hold. Ether is the name of the medium, space, or something occupying space, through which light is transmitted. An instrument was devised capable of detecting a variation of one millionth of the velocity of light. The effect of the ether stream to be measured was at least a hundred times greater than this. A beam of light directed on equidistant mirrors, one in the direction of the stream, the other across the stream, was reflected back to the source. The ether stream should have retarded one of the beams, producing an interference fringe. But the expected result was not obtained. The ether stream was shown to be without effect on the observed velocity of light. Presuming the accuracy of the experiment, and this is not questioned, and moreover has had independent confirmation, the result is decisive for theory. It has demonstrated the constancy of the velocity of light to an observer in a moving system, and as the variation due to the ether stream must be accounted for, the only possible conclusion is that space and time of the observer accommodate themselves to the constancy of the velocity. There is no need here to follow out the development of the theory, to describe the work of Einstein in the formulation of the general principle of relativity, which extends to gravitation and to all the laws of nature. The scientific concept of the nature of physical reality is not an absolute existence independent of mind, but a coordinated framework relative to the observer. The significance of the new theory is not in the revolution it has occasioned. So far as physical science is concerned, it is no more disconcerting to treat space and time as variables than it was to treat the Earth as moving when the Copernican discovery showed that the common-sense theory of a geocentric universe was untenable. The two cases are exactly analogous. The adoption of any scientific basis of reality is, to some extent, arbitrary. What drives us to it is not obstinate fact, but convenience. The principle of relativity is adopted because it is more convenient. It is true, indeed, that the new principle extends the range of mathematics. Also, it reconciles some puzzling discrepancies between astronomical calculation and fact, which were not due to error. The true significance of the theory is only seen, however, when the whole historical evolution is taken into account. It is the recognition that it is impossible to coordinate the physical universe without taking into account the observer's standpoint. It marks the introduction into science, and full recognition of a monadic principle. The observer in a system in relative translation in regard to other systems measures his universe from his own standpoint by three dimensions of space and the one dimension of time. These dimensions are not constant, they vary with the acceleration and direction of the translation of the system, and by their variation velocities are kept constant. This is a new world view. The universe consists of events, and these events are coordinated by the observer so that a constant ratio between space and time is maintained. Space and time vary, therefore, with the system of reference, and ultimately every observer is the unique center of his own system of reference. There is, therefore, no objective scale by reference to which magnitudes can be assigned an absolute value. Great and small are relative terms. We all recognize the constancy of velocity when we compare the range of activity of a human being with that of other living creatures. For as an insect's world is smaller than ours, and a bird's world more extended, we must imagine each creature to coordinate its world on a scale of its own and not on ours. 
but the world view which science now presents to us enabled us to apply this principle of the constancy of velocity on an infinite scale. Physical science, in fact, presents to our view a universe which is as amazing in its limitations as it is infinite in its vista. At one of these limits, above us, as we say, is the stellar system, and on the other limit, below us, as we say, is the atomic system. These bound for us the scientific horizon, but they are not indefinite limits indicating an obscurity into which the mind can penetrate no further. They are clear, systematic, inclusive concepts which give to our universe the character of an objective, organic, self-repeating design. The planet on which our life has evolved appears to our imagination as the electron of a vastly magnified atom, and the atom is a solar system shrunk to infinitesimal proportions. The principle of relativity shows us that this great and little are not absolute magnitudes. The infinitely great becomes infinitely little when the observer changes his system of reference. Shrunk to the proportions of the atom, the electron of the physicist becomes for the observer a planet revolving in its orbit around a sun, and we have only to imagine a being of Olympian proportions and the necessary range of activity to see earth and sun and stars dwindle to atoms. Whatever change the new system may introduce in the quality of experience, the proportions will remain the same. Such is the significance of the constancy of the velocity in the principle of relativity. This brief outline of some of the distinct stages in the evolution of the scientific concept of physical reality is intended to emphasize the impossibility of separating scientific and philosophical development. At one time, the fashionable theory was that science had superseded philosophy. It was declared to mark a new error, a definite progress in human reason and a new stage in freedom from mental bondage. The old mythological and theological stage had been replaced by a metaphysical stage, and now, in modern inductive science, it was said, a new positive stage had come to supersede the vague and unsatisfactory speculations of philosophy. A mere glance at the historical connections shows how shallow this judgment was. Today, it is impossible to ignore the claims of philosophy, but it is usual to accord it, often grudgingly, a place of subsidiary importance, dealing with subjects altogether distinct from the sciences, and not possessing, like them, a sure basis in physical reality. But history shows us that the supposed clear lines of demarcation are arbitrary and false. Philosophy depends on the world view. Modern science and modern philosophy arose together when the heliocentric discovery altered the world view. At every stage, the speculative or large view of the philosopher has acted and reacted on the analytical and experimental research of the scientific investigator. For a long time, indeed, the methods seem to diverge, but today we are witnessing a remarkable approximation. The approximation is due to the recognition of the monadic principle. End of chapter 3 Recording by Todd